Section 29 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The World Story, Volume 12. The United States. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 29. The Coming of the Pilgrims. 1620. By William Elliot Griffiths. It was resolved that the youngest and the strongest of the Leiden congregation should first go to New Netherland and start a colony. If Providence seemed to approve of their undertaking, then the others, including the middle-aged and the old, would come out also, if they could. That is, if they were not hindered by their intolerant king and the bigoted people in the London Company, who hated Brownists. How wonderful and exciting must have been the dreams of the pilgrim lads and lassies from the day of decision. It was on July 22, 1620, that the pioneer party left Delfshaven on the Moss River, 14 miles south of Leiden, in the little ship Speedwell, reaching Southampton a few days later. There they met the larger vessel, the Mayflower, from London. For the first time, many of the young folks looked upon old England, the Leiden Church had sent one or two agents over to England to secure a ship and provisions and make agreement about work for the company, shares, payment, etc. Now they found that matters for the colony had been arranged in a very distasteful way, and besides they had to sell off most of their butter and all their beer in order to pay their debts and clear the harbour. Even then they were poorly equipped. However, the two ships started. The Speedwell soon began to leak and they had to put in at Dartmouth, and again at Plymouth, losing both time and money. After getting well into the Atlantic, the rascally captain of the Speedwell, who did not want to cross the ocean, declared she was unseaworthy. So turning back to Plymouth, the weakest of the company were put on the Speedwell and sent back to London, while the strongest and bravest, numbering 102 persons, started on the large ship for a voyage in the stormiest time of the year. When in mid-ocean the frame of the Mayflower was so strained by the chopping waves and the terrible winds that one of the great supporting beams of the ship was drawn out of place, then it seemed as though the vessel would go to pieces. Fortunately, one of the passengers had a piece of Dutch hardware on board, which had been invented some years before. This was called a domekracht, or as we say, a jackscrew. By this, the stout beam was forced into place and being held by an iron band and supported by a post, the ship was made safe again. Then they caulked the seams and tried to keep dry and comfortable. But shut up in the foul air by the horrible weather, and then afterwards much exposed to the raw winds and cold, it is not surprising that the seeds of quick consumption were planted in their constitutions. Expecting first to see Sandy Hook and to disembark near the Hudson River, the pilgrims made landfall at Cape Cod, Instead of a lovely land, robed in the verdure and flowers of late summer or early autumn, they beheld leafless trees, through which the chill winds of November roared and whistled with pines and cedars. Yet Pilot Coppin, who had been once across the Atlantic, had not made a mistake in his original reckoning, but something had carried the Mayflower too far north, just as it had done Verrazzano many years before. What was the mystery? Coppin, and many who like him mistook their course, could not then tell. 
foolish people long afterward with that shameful prejudice against the dutch which so many americans have inherited from the englishmen and their wars like to think that the pilot of the mayflower was bribed by the dutch the truth is that men did not know anything then about the gulf stream which probably never was understood until after the time of benjamin franklin who was the first to study it philosophically this great blue stream of warm water flowing northward had disturbed Verrazzano's, as it did Coppin's, calculations. The captain of the Mayflower tried to sail southward around Cape Cod, but could not get the Mayflower through the rough waters, shoals, and quicksands. Thankful to escape shipwreck, the pilgrims gladly turned back, and the Mayflower found anchorage off the point where Provincetown now lies. Here, in the summer of 1897, was unveiled a monument in honor of this historic ship and her heroic passengers. It was a mixed company on board the Mayflower. In the first place there were rough sailors. Some of them were very profane and heartless. The captain and mates did not care to remain one day longer than necessary on this side of the Atlantic, and they gave their passengers hints that they must soon get ashore. Then the colonists had expected to settle in New Netherland, or within the limits claimed by the London-Virginia Company, but had been compelled by the Gulf Stream, or by Providence, to settle in these northern regions of the Plymouth Company, for which they had no patent. They were therefore without any authority or means of government. Some of the uncertain characters on board, who were rather free with their tongues, were already giving out that when on land they were going to do pretty much as they pleased. Perhaps the everyday morality of the Pilgrim Company was a little too severe for them. It was necessary to agree upon some form of government. So in the cabin of the little ship, the leaders met together, and in the name of God, and as loyal subjects of the superstitious monarch that hated them, and whom they called the King of France, as well as of Great Britain and Ireland, and even nominated the Defender of the Faith, they covenanted and combined themselves together into a civil body politic. They promised all due submission and obedience to such laws and offices as should be enacted. To this document, probably laid upon the lid of a chest, Forty-one names out of the sixty-five adult passengers then on the ship were signed. Governor Carver was made head of the colony. This compact, since copied in bronze and cut in stone, and made the theme of poetry and oratory, was the natural result of the provisions already made by the company in London. Several weeks were spent in exploring the country by sending out parties on land and over the waters in the shallop. Among the adventures were the finding of corn, the remains of an old fort, the graves of two Europeans, and many evidences of the Indians, such as deer traps, deserted wigwams, trails, and old maize fields. They had one skirmish with the Indians, in which no one was hurt. One party spent a Sunday on Clark's Island. One of the first things done was by the women, who went ashore to wash clothes. Men and boys helped them to build fires, with sweet-smelling juniper or cedar wood, and to bring fresh water from a spring on the beach. Thus was begun the great American Monday wash day. It was not until the 21st of December, in the stormy weather, that they landed and began their settlement, at what Captain John Smith had already named Plymouth. Here were a brook of fresh water, cultivated land, and a fairly good site for a town, with a hill nearby for a fort, just as at Leiden. On the shore lay a boulder, one of the very few large stones anywhere in the neighborhood, 
which had taken a ride on some prehistoric glacier or iceberg, and had thus been carried down from regions farther north in Canada. This they made their first wharf or landing place, the tradition being that Mary Allerton was the first woman who stepped upon it. The men went daily to and from the ship in the wet and stormy weather, occasionally remaining several days and nights on land, but every day working hard, putting up log houses and covering them with thatch. As in all new colonies, there were great dangers from fire, for evidently these people were not accustomed to build houses and to make good chimneys. But though the roofs were several times burnt off, the log walls remained unhurt. The settlement at Plymouth was a good deal like that in Leiden, with houses in rows, with one wide street between, and the hill fort in which they mounted their four little cannon. Their food was rather poor, but they managed to vary it with a few wild ducks and geese. The provisions and stores were landed and put under shelter late in January, by which time they had roofed the common house, which was at once filled with the sick and dying. It was not until late in February that their fort was in sufficiently good order to be considered capable of withstanding an attack. No human being of the country visited them until the middle of March. By this time contagious consumption had broken out, which quickly carried off whole families and diminished their number nearly one-half, so that only a few able-bodied men were left. Nevertheless, when the Mayflower went away, not one of the colonists returned in her. Even the ship became a pest-house, for many of the sailors that were living in the germ-infested quarters of the late passengers sickened and died. With such brutal and profane sailors in a floating coffin, it is no wonder that the pilgrims, even if any of them had a longing to run the risk of imprisonment and death at the hands of their country's rulers, preferred to trust in God and stay on the bleak shores of Massachusetts. End of section 29